This Restorative Justice Life is a production of Amplify RJ. Follow us on all social media platforms at Amplify RJ or sign up for our email list to stay up to date on everything we have going on. And to get the most involved, join our free Mighty Networks community to get connected with others living this restorative justice life all over the world. As far as this podcast goes, make sure you're subscribed, leave a rating and review, and share with a friend to help us further amplify this work. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to This Restorative Justice Life, the podcast that explores how the philosophy, practices, and values of restorative justice apply to our everyday lives. I'm your host, David Ryan Barcega Castro Harris, all five names for the ancestors, and I'm the founder of Amplify RJ. On this podcast, I talk with RJ practitioners, circle keepers, and others doing this work about how this way of being has impacted their lives. Sarah, welcome to This Restorative Justice Life. Who are you? I am... Sarah Shord, a trauma-informed journalist. Who are you? I am a human being on a healing journey and a justice journey. Mm. Who are you? I'm a playwright and a producer of abolitionist theater. Who are you? I am a friend and a auntie in chosen family and in biological family and a daughter and a sister. Who are you? I am a child of the earth. Who are you? I am a person seeking visionary change. And finally, for now, who are you? (laughs) I'm a person that is um, on her second cup of coffee and still a little groggy this morning. I don't know. Yeah, I've been sleeping very deep. I just moved into a yurt, so I'm in a very different environment. I'm in a big transition in my life. Yeah. Well, with all of those things in mind, very grateful to have you on this restorative justice life today. We'll get to some of the intersections of who you are and more um, throughout our conversation. But um, we also like to start off with asking to the fullest extent that you want to answer the question, how are you? Oh, I'm good. Thank you. That was, that was a really nice exercise. That was fun. Yeah, always interesting to see the things that come up. And, you know, one of the first things that you shared with us is, you know, being a trauma-informed journalist. I I encountered your work as a journalist uh, a couple weeks ago as of time of recording, right? Um, Listeners of the podcast may or may not know that I keep Google alerts for the words restorative justice. Um, And a little bit ago, um, a handful of things around the death of a woman named Jen Angel uh, popped up. Your article included um, in the San Francisco Chronicle. And of course, that'll be linked in the show notes for people who want to check that out. But with that, describing... um, Jen's death and the way that her chosen family wanted the people involved in the criminal legal system, the criminal punishment system to take restorative approaches to 
addressing the harm that happened in that case um, was met with a lot of different perspectives, right? From your perspective, there was a lot of yours and others' perspectives, right? There were a lot of people saying, you know, let's respect this. Restorative justice is a way that we can heal, move forward. Um, and there were a lot of other news outlets, you know, Fox News, the Daily Mail, the New York Post, among others, right, who were ridiculing this, right? Saying that um, restorative justice is about, you know, talking about your feelings and letting killers walk free. Um, you know, those who are listening to this podcast may or may not have an orientation towards restorative justice already. Um, you know, the way that I define restorative justice is that it's a philosophy and set of practices rooted in indigenous values of interconnection, where of course we're going to repair relationships when harm happens because we are a part of each other, right? Interconnection, Ubuntu, Kapwa, Metakuyasin, Inlakech, like all of these phrases um, get to these values of interconnection. We're a part of each other. Um, and we live in conditions where we don't have strong relationships built or actively maintained rooted in equity and trust. And so for that reason, it's a lot harder for people to want to do that restoration. And so when I'm hearing these perspectives from, you know, these right wing conservative outlets about um, why restorative justice is not it, why it's bad, why it's actually like harmful and punitive. I don't get angry. I, I might've gotten angry at one point in my life. I'm just sad. Right. Because like, oh, you live in a world, you have a worldview where you don't see the people on the other side of this crime as a part of yourself. You don't see people on the other part of this um, hurt as a part of yourself. And you don't recognize that you are a person who has caused harm as well and have had and have been given opportunities to heal and repair um, or maybe like just get away with shit because of your um, power and privilege. But More likely um, I've said a lot, all... Right. And I've said a lot all to ask you this question, you know, restorative justice is something that's important to you. Um, where did this journey get started? Oh yeah. Um, I really love that question. And, um, in your introduction, to, I'd love to just start by saying, um, by grounding this in, in honoring the Jen's life and, and legacy, Jen Angel, mm -hmm. um, is that okay with you if I start there? It just feels like the right Yeah, absolutely. And then I'll, I'll definitely come to, to the question. Um, but, you know, Jen Angel believed in restorative justice and her loved ones are honoring her, her vision, her truth, her belief system in asking for alternatives to incarceration and, and not wanting her, her brutal death to be um, an excuse to hire more police or incarcerate more people. And, um, so I just want to start by honoring Jen as the loving and um, incredible world-shaping person that she was. Um, Jen Angel, for decades, was so many things in the world. And I, I was watching her from the sidelines for decades because we're I'm only a few years younger. She was 48 when she died, um, I believe, three weeks ago now. And no one has been apprehended in the case um, but it was as a result of a, of a, of a purse snatching gone very bad. And, um, before we dive into the, you know, complexities and nuances, just to celebrate the individual and the, the beautiful spirit that was lost and that transitioned as a result of that event. Um, yeah, Jen was a abolitionist. Um, she was an anarchist and she was a baker 
she was the kind of person that brought, she, she owned a bakery shop called Angel Cakes in Oakland that employed a lot of people that were directly impacted by incarceration and the system. And she was just the kind of person that was devoting her whole life to, um, you know, building new worlds and thinking outside of the limited um, racist and structurally unequal systems that we live under. Um, all of us in different positions, but all of us under these systems and um, have found, you know, creative ways to liberate ourselves from within. And um, yeah, Jen was just one of those people. So I just want us to honor and, and send love to her wherever she is in whatever form. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for centering that. And I mean, um, when I think about the conversations that we have here, part of it is that like harm is happening every day all around us being addressed in some way, shape or form. Right. Um, and the ability to have this explicit conversation around um, a violent death is not something that we often do um, for, for a handful of reasons. Um, and it's important to recognize that like, as we're talking about like the theory and the philosophical and like big picture reasons why this work is important. Like this is impacting real people um, who live full lives and are worthy of this kind of care. Um, and that goes to, you know, you who's listening to this right now um, and the person next to you on the train or the person next to you in the car who like maybe just cut you off or the person that you're going to go into a meeting with uh, right after you take these AirPods out of your ears. Right. Um, this work is theoretical. Yes. Philosophy, but it's also very practical. Um, and so much of how uh, Jen lived and um, thank you for bringing her and centering that in this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for, you know, for giving the space um, to, to delve into some of the things, you know, that are some of the implications of the events around Jen's life and death and, and her legacy and how it's playing out. You know, her story's not finished. That's something I said in my article. Yeah. Um, and her, her community is continuing to, to write her, her legacy the way that she would have wanted it to the best of their ability. So, Yes, I'm a trauma-informed journalist. That was the question, right? And how how did I come to RJ being an important part of my work in my life? Yeah, the other way that sometimes we frame the question is, you've been doing the work around or of restorative justice for a while now, but you probably got started before you knew the words explicitly. So how did this start? Oh, yeah, that's real. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I that gives me hope in, I've been, a, I've been fighting the prison system as a journalist and also as an activist and an advocate and, and a survivor um, for 12 years now. And through my creative projects and my journalistic investigations have exposed the horrors and also just been again and again, you know, found teachers inside. Um, mm -hmm. our prison system that have, that have guided my path in many ways. Um, one of the things that gives me hope and keeps me going when it comes to prison and how entrenched these structures are and the belief systems that are the bedrock of these structures um, that are so destructive in the world, you know, the belief in um, 
individualism and punishing the individual and not looking at the collective and not holding the collective and healing the collective. One of the things that gives me hope is that we've always been doing repair as human beings or we wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. So um, as much as I look at my own personal family history and I see, I see trauma, I see conflict and I look at my ancestral history and I see harm done by my ancestors and I see the ways that they, the strategies that they use to survive that I don't agree with and don't want to replicate. I also see that this history of repair and healing in my own family structure and all around me in the world. And I think, well, you know, it's the reason that the prisons have not been successful is that we've been humans have always been doing restorative justice. Yeah. What was like, are there any like specific ways that, you were able to like see examples of that healing within your family or within your lineage that like really made an impact for you? Well, um, the way that my family was radicalized um, politically is that my mother, uh, when I was young, uh, left my father because he was uh, physically abusive Mm -hmm. and she had the strength to get out of that situation. And we, we, packed up the car with whatever we could fit into to the, you know our, our little heap of junk car and drove across the country from Chicago to LA um, with my cat Fluffy Muffin and a few boxes of toys. And in California, in a lot of ways, I mean, California has defined my life and my, my identity. I'm very culturally oriented towards California, you know, in every way. Um, and this is where my mom and I became radical activists from the time that I was a child. We were anti-war, we were in the punk um, scene. And growing up in Los Angeles, we, we became also aware of, of white supremacy um, and, and our part in that and, and interested in racial justice and very angry at the patriarchy. <laughs> that was a very strong theme. Um, and so I would say that the, the ability to find community when you are really um, running from violence and, you know, the legacies of that violence um, mm-hmm. in my, in my family, um, the, we were able to get outside of that and find other people like us yeah. and find other people that thought like us and that, that wanted a different world that we could build with. And that's the legacy of activism in my family. And I think it's very much connected to, um, repair and, and, you know, healing, um, and, you know, daring to find other people to build, build a different world with. Yeah, I think, and this might be because I've spent a lot of the last couple weeks, um, talking with young people about ideas of restorative justice and then met an incredible amount of resistance from people talking about issues of gendered violence. Um, and like, how are you going to have a restorative process for something like that? Um, and I get where the difficulty around that is. I also like in those conversations that I'm trying to highlight, I, and I think it might be difficult from, you know, the body that I'm in and the way that, uh, I present in the world as a cis straight dude. Um, but thinking about, you know, if we are to rely on systems of punishment in those cases, like we're not going to get healing and we're not going to get repair, right? You might get a sense of temporary safety 
right? But like, what are the needs? What are the other needs that you have that are being addressed? And like, arguably, like you're not even really safe <laughs> by going to systems um, of punishment to get quote unquote justice. Um, and so I'm curious, like, if that was ever a calculation that your mom was making and like she had conversations with you about explicitly, or that's something that like you gained like understanding of a little bit later. Um, yeah. I mean, I was too young yeah. to, to understand what the heck was going on. Sure. I just knew that my mom was taking things in her own hands and, you know, looking back now, I, she didn't rely on, uh, you know, as a, as a white woman, the fact that she didn't rely on, police and the carceral state as a way out of her situation, the situation that was in, endangering her life and, um, and, and her child is really mind blowing. Um, and I do think, and this, this connects back to Jen, you know, Jen was in the DIY punk scene too, as problematic as, as, as the punk scene can be. I mean, it's very patriarchal. It can be very white, although it's um, definitely not, exclusively either of those things. Um, you know, I think that that was my mom's refuge. She was angry. She wanted to get out of this patriarchal relationship of control and punishment. And she found other people that were angry too, and, and took it into her, her own hands and, and started a new life somewhere. And, um, yeah, I, I, I admire the heck out of that lady <laughs> for doing that. And I think, yeah, looking back now, I, I, I understand even more, how um, unusual that is. Um, well, I mean, I think when we like, and this isn't a, I didn't mean for this to be like a full conversation on uh, gendered violence or domestic uh, violence, but like, I started I mean, it. Yeah, Sorry. no, I mean, like if we like statistically look at like um, it happens way more than it's reported to police and like, why don't people do anything about it? Um, because like the police are terrible at dealing with all of this, right? Um, exactly. They're not well-resourced. Uh, the police um, are a patriarchal entity um, who are, and like, you can make an argument for like, okay, well, we just need trauma-informed police, but like, let's not go there. Um, let's, let's continue on um, talking about ways to not resource um, systems of violent oppression um, at the end of a gun, sorry, state sanctioned oppression at the end of end of a gun or um, other things you talk about, yeah. you know, can I, and yeah, I will yeah, say just really ahead. briefly um, since we have gotten into this, that, that I, you know, you can never put yourself in other people's shoes and sure. I don't judge women that do call the police when their lives are, you know, threatened, but you at, at all in any way, sometimes there really are no other, means for safety. And, and that's why we're talking about restorative justice, right? Because those structures don't exist. And that's why a lot of people are so confused when, you know, um, Jen Angel's loved ones call for restorative justice. They think right away, you know, just to, to pivot back to that, they think, oh, that means you just want to let her quote unquote killers go free because they've already decided that they know who these people are. They know what the conditions are. You know, they're not interested in the specifics and restorative justice invites us to delve into the specifics of a situation um, where harm was done and ask, you know, what is it we, that we don't know here? And what is it that we, if we find out some of these answers, what, what can we actually do to prevent more crimes like this from happening? And, um, you know, that's something that wasn't available 
to my mother when I was young, and it's not available to so many people across the country. And that's why, you know, you're doing what you're doing with this podcast, right, is to get out the message that that, that people don't even know what art restorative justice can look like. Um, so let's talk about that. Yeah. What was your formal introduction to the words? I'm pretty sure that I, um, I think it was, um, do you know, generation five mm-hmm. that, um, I, I went to a workshop early in my twenties and I believe that word was mentioned then, but it was, it was definitely the first time that the concept, you know, gen five as an organization deals with domestic violence and violence against women and children, um, and, um, sexual violence, and they talk about how in order to really prevent these horrible acts from happening in our communities, we have to continue the work for five generations. We have to do the work with that kind of long vision um, yeah. where we're thinking, where we're considering the people that are not born as, as our, as part of our community, because we're preventing violence, you know, with that kind of foresight. Uh, so I think yeah. it was then. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, and I don't know if these were the words that used like generation five is often credited with using like bringing the framework of transformative justice, right? Like transforming the conditions under which harm is happening. So like, we're not trapped in these cycles of violence. Um, they're largely credited for um, thinking about like a transformative justice framework, knowing that like this grew out of a restorative justice way of dealing with individual incidents of conflict and harm, right? We can solve, um, something that went on between two people, but like some of the root causes um, are outside of like what just went on between those two people. When we're talking about um, patriarchy, um, when we're talking about, you know, the prison industrial complex and, and all of these things, it's uh, it goes beyond just like, Hey, what are the things that these two individuals need in order to heal and move forward um, in a way that um, is meeting their needs as much as possible. Right. There are, societal conditions that we need to be thinking about. Um, there are community uh, resources that we need to be building so people have other ways of dealing with um, conflict and harm that aren't perpetuating moments of conflict and harm. And so when you had this conversation or were in this workshop with Generation 5, like what was it about it that clicked for you and what did that lead you to um, in this journey? I mean, at the time I was doing... Um anti-racist work um, in Oakland, and I was doing um, indigenous rights solidarity work with the Zapatista movement in Southern mm-hmm. Mexico. So I was starting out as doing international human rights work and, and a lot of anti-war work. And, and, you know, it resonated with me with my family history, but it wasn't something that I was ready to really delve into. Um, it was after my own incarceration and for the last 12 years, working on exposing the brutality of solitary confinement in particular as a control mechanism and as one of the principal control me- mechanisms that that suppresses dissent and allows for people, incarcerated people, to fight for their rights, their human rights, and to organize. People are yeah. disappeared to the whole in order to stop that. Um, you can't, you know, I, I can't do anti-prison work without having a really clear vision on what is the world that we're trying to create. And, and, it, and then you realize that actually anti-prison work is creating that world, that it's impossible to focus on the problem without also asking yourself, am I part of building the kind of world where that is not 
um, based on these, you know, punitive and um, racist, um, hierarchical, and, and just like the most negative possible worldview <laughs> in the world. Yeah. It creeps, you know, these institutions are so pervasive, the, the prison and carceral state, it affects everyone in our society. I really believe that people think that somehow, if they're not directly affected, it's not affecting them. But it really is how we relate to one another is affected by the fact that we put millions of, of majority black and brown people in cages in this country. And so that invitation, again, in order to continue focusing on the work of prison abolition, I have to also be able to have a restorative justice practice in my life, in my relationships, in my family. And, and it has to be very um, informed by my anti-racist um, practice and commitments. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you glossed over like my incarceration. So I'm going to ask you to share as much as you want to about that in a second, but like, just to like bookend, like what you just said about, you know, abolition is great, but in the words of Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Miriam Kaba and maybe others that I'm mashing together in a paraphrase, right? abolition of these systems is as much about presence of life-giving institutions and systems as much as it is the absence of like these death-making institutions. Right. And so like we can say we don't want, we want a world without prisons, but like we need something in order to be able to deal with the conflict and harm that is going to continue to happen because humans are messy with each other. um, And we're going to continue to harm each other. And like, what are the ways that we're going to do deal with that without like, locking people up, isolating them from their communities where they might have been causing harm in one specific instance, but they were also like probably contributing in a lot of different ways. And they were also being supported in a lot of different ways, pulling someone out of the place where they're being supported and expecting them to be better um, is not really an effective way of dealing with uh, conflict and harm. I think like it makes so much sense and it's not very common. Like even you know, uh, for those listening or longtime listeners, right, you know that I am a relatively new parent. And as we're looking at daycares, um, the conversation that we had the other day was about like how a daycare deals with discipline. And they were talking about suspensions. And I was like, suspensions for like, uh, a, like a one-year-old, right? Like, what are you talking about? And so obviously like, it's not where my kid is going to be going, but, um, what you know, are you what, talking about? Oh. <laughs> when we are in a society that relies on punishment so much, like we need to know what these alternatives are. And this is so much of your work. Um, I, um, I do want to, you know, as much as you want to share, like help give us some context for your, um, anti-prison work, um, you know, you talked about, you know, your experience with um, solitary, right? And, you know, if we think about restorative justice as being um, about interconnection, um, solitary is like the, like, absolute, like, other end of that spectrum, where you are isolated, cut off from most of the outside world um, in really extreme ways, um, to the extent that you're comfortable or want to share here. Um, Can you give us some context? Yeah, of course. Um, at, yeah, as a result of my, um, or as an extension of my anti-war work uh, in my 20s, I moved to the Middle East. And um, I, I lived in Yemen and I lived in Syria. 
and I was on a, um, a trip in northern Iraq, which is at the time, it was before ISIS, it was Kurdistan, an, an autonomous region that is pretty pro-American in, in a bizarre way. I mean, I'm very against my country's foreign policy, obviously, but I was in a, in a region where they were giving me high fives because they love George Bush. Um, and so I was in a part of the Middle East, the reason I mentioned that is where my guard was really down. And I was on a, I wasn't on a journalist, invest, um, I wasn't investigating anything. I wasn't working as a journalist. I was hiking and I was captured um, and, and held as a political hostage. This was in 2009. And I was in solitary confinement for 410 days, completely incommunicado. And I, in that period, all I wanted was to get back to the stream of life and to the web of life. And I, you know, it felt like being plucked out of um, everything that I ever loved and having my life ripped away from me, but there was a chance I could get it back. And I knew that if I did get it back, I would commit my life to, to justice and for other people. And I would, you know, just want to repay the world for not forgetting about me, not leaving me um, to, to die there. And there was a very strong movement for my release. And, you know, my imprisonment was very high profile at the time. And that had to do with the longstanding animosity between the Iranian government and the U.S. government. And we were part of the nuclear deals and it was all, we were pawns in a much larger, larger political ga game. But when mm -hmm. I got out, I right away wanted to find other people that had, I, I was trying to understand how to heal from solitary confinement. And those wounds are, are so deep. It's the wound of belonging, you know, yeah. being rejected. And even though I knew that I wasn't there because of anything I'd done wrong, it's really hard not to blame yourself. Um, it's really hard to, to hang on to your ideals and your choices and your path in life and, and not feel like something, it must be horribly wrong with me that I'm being hurt this way. Because, um, you know, it, it affects you psychologically, it affects your your spirit and, and, and it affects your, your neurons, your frontal lobe. And, um, it makes you attack yourself mentally. Um, you become your own torturer. And so the, the, the faith that I had was this vision of being able to rejoin the stream of life and become a part of collective liberation. And so every day I, I count myself very grateful that I am a part of that the movement for collective liberation in this country in, in the different hats that I wear. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, while the circumstances of your um, incarceration are different than what most people who are incarcerated experience in the United States, like there are very similar, like there are a lot of similarities, right? Like they're not necessarily country to country political reasons that um, many people are incarcerated now, but the way that we rely on punishment as a means of control, um, right? And you know, you got caught up in foreign policy decisions that like were made way above your head. Um, people who are being caught up within the criminal legal system now, um, yes, by individual actions, right? Like you chose to go on a hike that day and like that wasn't wrong. Yes, someone decided to participate in the um, underground economy as a means to make ends meet for their family. Like 
how are we assigning value to those things, right? The conditions under which the, your everyday choices were made um, were rooted in violence and control. And, you know, the situation that people face in the U.S., in the U.S., like, um, prison industrial complex, like, are not the same as, like, what you experience, right? But the ideology behind using punishment as control to get what you want as fear, um, like, it has really similar effects on people, right? Um, exactly. When you talk about the way that you are, um, you are isolated and, like, the psychological warfare that you end up doing to yourself like is the same thing that happens to people who are kicked out of their communities or removed from their communities whether that is within the criminal legal system whether it is within you know schools when we talk about suspension right you're telling someone to leave this community you're taking someone out of this community not providing them with any kind of support or means to change um, and expecting them to come back what just more damaged more like having animosity towards the people who did that towards them. And, you know, again, with your experience, not being with the U S government, not being with people um, who you might have felt were like your people who were doing this to you. I imagine I'm not even going to try to put myself in your shoes. I'm going to ask. It's a, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot. Whenever yeah. my story comes up, I'm like, I don't want it to be too much of a distraction. It was 12 years ago. You know, we're, yeah. there's, there are hundreds of thousands of people experiencing this now in our own country. But I will say that the common denominator is that this serves um, state power and control, you know, mm -hmm. that, that incarceration, it, it served the Iranian government to punish an individual for systemic problems. Um, and it serves, it served the U S government for me to be in there too, because they both wanted um, to continue to, to sell the story of, of the other, of being the enemy of the people. And, incarceration and the carceral state in all of its forms serves institutional power. It serves people in power. Um, it's a way of, of punishing individuals instead of coming up with solutions that would serve humanity. Right. Thank you for helping me pull out of that. I think about making sure that we are asking those questions of like, who does this benefit? Um, when we're facing these issues, right? Um, you know, over the last couple weeks, right, we're talking about harm constantly happening, um, you know, in the wake of the Monterey Park and uh, Half Moon Bay shootings, right? Like very close to where you and I live respectively. Um, you know, I've been in deep conversation with folks in the Asian community about grief and like what happens, who benefits, right? When we grieve, privately or like just try to like push past it quickly, right? Capitalism benefits, right? White supremacy benefits when we don't take time to stop and acknowledge um, the harm that is continually happening. And so much of what happens um, is like, we just numb ourselves to what's going on in the world because it is constantly happening to us every day. And I think, you know, just to, you know, to tag back to what we're talking, like what initiated this conversation, right? Jen's, death right is something that was out of the ordinary like the way that her and her family wanted us to um address and approach this kind of harm like it is out of the ordinary and so like that's why we are like taking this time to talk about it but you know these things like you were saying are constantly happening to us on a systemic like 
and like at the hands of the state um and like the way that we interact with each other individually um both by the mechanisms of you know policy from schools or the organizations that we participate in or work for um but even like in the mindsets that we have in our everyday lives there's a question coming out of here i promise when i think about the way that you talked about you know wanting to for lack of a better word like give back serve humanity towards our collective liberation what are some of the ways that that has manifested for you over the last couple of years, uh, last 12 years, right? I imagine there was a time of like a lot of intensity right after, but like when you were able to regroup and be a little bit more strategic, like what have you thought about and like, how's that manifested? Uh, yeah. Um, I'm happy to talk about that. And I also just want to say, I'm glad you brought it back to, to grief. Um, it's something that I'm learning to do still um and i and and it's something that, that i believe my ancestors are not good at uh, you know there's at, as far as you know white culture um in particular there's always a, this push to just keep it moving you know and and i and i think this also so i came out of prison and dove into social justice work and didn't take time mm. to grieve and there were there was a lot of consequences to that and i'm i'm recognizing now when I have this very driven um, personality, but I want to make sure it's not driven by by guilt, um, because that that urgency culture can be very destructive, um, and it can be you know particularly destructive as a white person when I'm working in black and brown communities. Um, you know, healing and goes at at its own pace, and the grief process cannot be rushed. <laughs> um, and I've, I've heard that um, several restorative justice organizations have reached out to Jen's loved ones, you know, and, and offered to start doing grief circles. And I'm really happy about that. Um, and they're still deciding what kind of support they need, but they're getting that support. And, and that is really, you know, a lot of Jen Angel's community, you and I talked about this earlier, are people that are fighting against um, prisons and policing you know, that, that want, um, like one of Jen's chosen family, um, loved ones is Emily Harris from the Ella Baker center. And, and they're working on policy change to decarcerate and, um, and, and fight against harsher sentencing. And this is like, well, now Emily and many of Jen's loved ones find themselves on the other side of the equation. And, and that's kind of, I think something that RJ reminds us of is you can, all of us are going to be on the side of, of perpetuating some kind of harm in our lives and being harmed. And, and there's very different positionality based on race and gender and, and, and class and, and different population and obviously black and brown. It's very important to emphasize how much black and brown populations are targeted by the carceral state. Mm -hmm. um, but this, this, um, you know, harming and being harmed is a part of just being human period. And I, so I think after being harmed myself, I mean, it wasn't the first harm. I mean, we talked about how I grew up in a, in a family with domestic violence. Um, but I really saw myself as being, you know, it became very, very clear to me that, that wanting revenge wasn't going to do anything. You know, the, the Iranian people, um, I, I support, I, you know, I was all, I protested against the possibility of war in Iran. I went to the Middle East as an extension of my anti-war work. Um, you know, these, there was no way that I was going to be, and also Iranian people 
loved me in prison and helped me keep going. Um, we were all in the same boat. So you find yourself one morning on one side of the equation of being human, and you can very easily wake up the next morning and be in a very different position. So I think that that's something um, important. This is why restorative justice is so based on dialogue. We don't know the story of, of the, the perpetrators of the crime that led to, to Jen's injuries and death. Um, her, we, we don't know, we, we do know that it is very unlikely that they woke up that morning wanting to do any sort of violence. You know, they woke up with an economic need, period. Mm-hmm. And restorative justice, a lot of people that are reactive to it and don't understand what it is, they say, well, yeah, but you're just making excuses. Um, what about, you know, accountability? And restorative justice is all about accountability. But our prison system has failed to provide us with that accountability. And, um, yeah. you know, the, the, the current system is not working. And and anyone who's paying any attention attention knows that the system of mass incarceration is not fulfilling its promise to provide safety to the community. And so people need to look outside of that system at how do we make safety? And we make safety through through looking at the root causes of, of these crimes, which doesn't mean letting people off the hook, doesn't mean saying that what they did is okay. Um, but it's as, as Lonnie Morris said in, in the article I wrote, it's about looking at the realities that breed this kind of crime and and what can we do to to prevent more of it yeah i think like i do want to give grace and understanding for people who oppose restorative justice because i think in the way that the word restorative justice have been used over the last I'll say 20 years specifically when it comes to the framework of the education system and breaking the school to prison pipeline, the execution of that has been like pretty poor, right? Like you can make policy changes that say like, Hey, we're going to do restorative justice work, but that doesn't mean the people in that building um, are equipped to do it. It doesn't mean the way that schools are structured are equipped to like make that time to hear people's stories and provide people with the resources they need in order to heal and make things as right or as right as possible. And so, I mean, again, this is coming off of a week where, or a little bit of time where I've spent a lot of time with young people who are really wrestling with these ideas of restorative justice, because like, Hey, you say this is a restorative process, but all I see is that this person got talked to and they're back in class. Right. And like they did the same thing two weeks later, right? Or again, and I know that that happens. And I would say that those, when we talk about, you know, restorative justice being about relationships, like how are we bringing those people into relationships and holding them accountable to the things that they agreed to within the context of those restorative conversations, right? Part of that requires you building a relationship with those people in order to make sure that they're following up on the things that they said they're following, that they were going to do to make things right or to not do those things again. And if we're not doing that, um, we're also failing, right? We're also not living up to the promises of um, keeping people safe, building safe communities. And, you know, as much as like, I want to be an advocate for everything restorative justice, not everything that people say is restorative justice is (laughs) restorative justice. And so like, I get where that critique can come from on some level. Mm -hmm. And right. That's why the work of Amplify RJ is so important. We're like, let's get really clear about what this is and how to do it and do it well. 
acknowledging that like we're not going to be perfect in our execution as people right um we the promise of restorative justice is that harm will never happen again right the promise of restorative justice is that we will have the skills the tools the practices to acknowledge each other's humanity right and acknowledge the needs and try our best to meet the needs of the people who have been impacted by an incident of harm, right? Both the person who was harmed, person who caused harm, and the other people who have been impacted. When we think about, you know, the organizations that have reached out to Jen's family, right? Um, I think we should reiterate that the people who uh, caused Jen's death have not been found, right? Um, but you're talking about like, how can we meet your needs? Like to hold process this, like immense grief, right? That has happened, right? What are the material needs that um, you have? And, you know, we'll also link the GoFundMe um, to the, the, the um, for, for Jen and her family uh, in the show notes as well, right? Like how can we meet those material needs? The needs that are caused by harm rarely, I don't want to say never, but like very, 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 very rarely require like the person who caused harm to then be harmed again, <laughs> Right. Um, we do want safety, right? We do want assurance to the extent possible that those things won't happen, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that looks like putting them in a cell, taking them out of their community, um, doing active, um, physical violence to people, right? Um, you know, the adage, like an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind, right? When we're thinking about, causing people harm who have caused us harm, right? What need are we meeting, right? Um, Danielle Sered in the book, uh, until, uh, until we reckon, until we reckon. Yeah. yeah. Um, and many others like have laid out examples of lots of people who have caused harm, um, sorry, who have been harmed, but like what they're needing is safety, um, assurance that it won't happen again. Very rarely is it like, I need that person to be punished. We hear stories of people who's, family members have been murdered, right? Sitting in the courtroom um, and hearing the guilty verdict and the sentence and like feeling like maybe a tinge of like acknowledgement and like a good feeling that like, yes, this person did a thing that hurt me, but now they're just being hurt more. And like, how is that healing me? Um, I really want to question people like the, I like I'm specifically not naming them, one for clout reasons too, just because like, this is not just about the individuals behind the Fox news, daily mail, New York post um, article, right? When you see justice as being like hurting other people, so you can feel better. Like, I want to ask you like, why? <laughs> right. And like, what is it about those other people that you don't see connected to as a part of yourself? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I just want to validate to, um, it, this is like the, the pain of 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 being in a family that's some that a, of a person and losing a person to horrific violence is is un, unimaginable. Um, mm -hmm. And there, that pain it really needs to take up space too. I think sometimes we're guilty of of going a little bit too fast in in the restorative justice or transformative justice conversation to it's just a, the emotional catharsis that needs to happen before you're ready to forgive is so real. I mean, and, and no one's asking people to just 
skip over because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about mm-hmm. it's it's grief that actually keeps us soft and stops us from hardening and becoming the kind of people that can can perpetuate or look the other way when it comes to harm in the first place, right? And um, so, you know, no one is saying that that um, that that people shouldn't be angry, that people shouldn't want to 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 see. I mean, as an abolitionist, I believe in that we need something along the lines of like centers for incapacitation. The one piece of the carceral state that I think is needed, and this is my opinion coming from me, is that sometimes people need to be removed so that we can figure out what's going on. You know, what needs to, mm-hmm. what they're, they're not safe it to themselves or others in their community and, and they need to be removed um, in an incapacitation center, incapacitated while we figure out what is the right um, way to move forward here while we get more information about the specific circumstances that led to this, to this harm being committed and, you know, does this person need therapy? Are, are they, do they need mental health services? Um, do they need a mentor? Do they need housing? Um, do, is there conflict resolution that's needed in their community? What kind of healing will make it so that this person is not driven to do something like this again? And we know that, as in contrast, our carceral state, um, and Sered, Daniel Sered says something like this in her book that, that you mentioned, Until We Reckon, um, you know, we're responding to violence with our carceral state in the same way that we know that the um, main drivers of violence, right? So we're adding fuel to fire. We're putting people in, in, in conditions that make people more violent. Um, mm-hmm. and, and also another thing Sered says um, is that the people that we're punishing are those that we're failing to protect. So how can we hold these realities that um, in in these these moments, the, you know, these instances of harm, everything that has failed in our society is is packed in there, and 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 clearly, we're not doing anything to address those root causes of harm, those drivers of harm. In Alameda County, you know, I investigated restorative justice for an Atlantic, an article that I published in the Atlantic a few years ago about preventable deaths in, in Santa Rita jail. And I compared that to Los Angeles County that actually has a lot more funding for diversion programs and, you know, sentence reductions. Alameda County has a dearth of these options for Jen's loved ones. They're saying we live in a County where there are a lot of people are fighting for restorative justice and our um, district attorney needs to give us those options um, we deserve those options as, as her loved ones. We want to uphold what Jen would have wanted. And we want to weigh in on, you know, if people are apprehended, we want to weigh in on the charges. You know, we don't believe that our communities are served by this disproportionately long sentencing. Um, and we want to weigh in mm-hmm. on the possibility of an early release and give this person, if these people are apprehended and jailed, and that's the way that it goes, we want to weigh in on what can we provide as far as mentoring and therapy and weighing in on how to get them out as soon as possible and, and how to address the, the root causes of what, what um, came to play that day um, that, that led in us losing our loved one, you know, forever. We'll never get Jen back. And it's important that the, the people mm-hmm. that were involved in this 
understand what a beautiful life was taken. Um, but sending someone to prison without any kind of restorative process, it's never, it's not never going to result. It's rarely ever going to result in any, any real understanding of the, the harm that took place, um, piling harm on harm on harm. Right. Yeah. And you know, when people ask like questions about restorative justice, like, what do you do with X? What do you do with like murder? Like you can't say like, murder and leave it there right you have to look at like the individual circumstances under which these things happened right when we're talking about death caused by like a purse snatching gone wrong like those have different needs than something that might have happened um between like a domestic um abuse case gone wrong right like those those incidents like while they both result in somebody's death like require different needs because of the people involved, the relationships involved, right? Exactly. These people who caused uh, Jen's death weren't people who like Jen, probably not people Jen like intimately knew, right? And so, you know, what are the needs that have been created? It's going to look different, right? There are like within the case of like somebody who has um, killed their spouse in, um, in a domestic abuse incident, right? Like the needs of the other people impacted, like, maybe children in that uh, in that situation, right? Like those are things that also need to be considered. And so when you say like, hey, what do you do when XYZ happens, right? Like, do we want these children to grow up in a world without access to their parent forever because of the thing that their parent did? Um, I know that like many people would say, yes, their parent did like an unforgivable, unspeakable thing. We also have to consider that, you know, maybe those children had like a really good loving relationship with their parent in that way. And what are the ways that we can not cause more harm by taking that person away from them forever and like being cut off. Yes. Right. So I know th those are like really like dramatic, specific and very real things that happen, but like just want to emphasize that like restorative justice does not allow us to say like, all right. 15 to 20 years or 20 years to life. Right. Um, and problem solved, right? Like it is laborious, um, work. The ways that we can go about manifesting that are diverting resources from, um, prisons and policing, uh, because like, you know, people who are doing this kind of healing work need to be resourced. Um, but it is worth it to get outcomes of liberation, healing, um, and I think real justice for the people who have been impacted by, you know, unspeakable harm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, what if we find out, you know, that, that there was a specific cause, um, you know, teenage pregnancy, um, sexual violence in the life of the people um, that, that, we're out there doing crimes um, that day and, and, and fatally, you know, which was resulted in, in, in Jen's fatality and the end of her life. What if we find out that there's a specific cause? We don't know what it is. It's something we may not even be able to begin to imagine, um, you know, gentrification, housing issues, homelessness, and Jen's community got together and decided in her legacy, we want to address this root cause. We want to, do something to, to, to help the people in this, these situations so that, that we can go to, you know, the source of this crime as opposed to mm. um, ignoring it completely. Um, and, you know, I think it's worth mentioning 
that a lot of the people that are doing restorative justice and transformative justice work are currently and formerly incarcerated people because it's the people that mm -hmm. find themselves at the intersection of, of all these hard realities in our society um, and that realize the, how incredibly urgent it is that we find new ways of addressing it. So people do restorative justice and transformative justice kind of dialogue inside prison, and then they come out and are leaders in the community. And a lot of the people that I've encountered in my own work as a, as a um, abolitionist theater producer and writer playwright is um, inspired by what I learned when I investigated people inside solitary confinement, the ways that they took care of each other, the ways that they found um, to, to create community and, and, and strengthen community in the most desperate of circumstances. And then when they come out, these people are just unstoppable on the outside um, as, as far as mm -hmm. how much they have to give back to their communities and how visionary they are. Yeah. And I'll say like, in spite of the conditions yes. that they were put in, not like this mentality, like, oh yeah, see, we put them there and they learned. No, no. no. And, <laughs> and, 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 and it's not like there's no consequence. You know, a lot of people that I know around the country, we did a, um, a tour of my play last summer, the end of isolation tour. And we went to 10 communities on the front lines of changing the policy to ban solitary confinement. Um, inside our prisons and jails in alignment with the principles of decarceration. The idea that the less people that we have in prison, the less people we're going to be torturing. And we are torturing people in order to maintain control inside our prisons. Make no mistake about it. Torture isn't something that happens in other countries like Iran. It happens in our backyards, um, in the prisons and jails where our loved ones are being taken. And it and the only function of the torture is to maintain a completely heinous and um, brutal system of incarceration that doesn't rehabilitate people, that doesn't serve public safety. And the other function is to suppress dissent so that people inside are not able to, if they are standing up for their human rights and organizing with each other, they're disappeared to the whole. So we, we traveled around the country and a lot of the formerly incarcerated organizers that are shutting down jails and opening up restorative justice centers around the country they're incredible human beings. And I just want to emphasize that it takes its toll. These are people doing the work of 20 people. And um, it's and, and part of that is driven by what they've seen that, you know, they can't forget. Um, I mean, I can speak from my own perspective as a survivor. Once you have, I can never turn my back on the fact that millions of people are in cages in this country um, and around the world because I've lived it. And once you've lived it, it's a part of you. And it's not a reality that you can or want to forget. Um, but it takes its toll. Um, a lot of people are, are sort of driven by an unbelievable um, sadness and grief, which is kind of where we started. And they're, they're carrying up burden for a lot of the rest, a lot of us that, that no one person should have to carry, <laughs> if that makes sense. But a lot of the formerly incarcerated people that I know, that's how I feel about what they what they're doing in the world. Um, it's just really carrying our collective burden. Yeah, it's really similar to, 
and, and not one-to-one, right? But thinking about it's not the job of black people to educate white people about white supremacy. It's not necessarily the job of people who have been incarcerated to do all this um, education to people who have not been or who have not been directly impacted in the way that some others have been. Um, it's very helpful and very grateful for you and others who are doing that work. But as someone who hasn't been incarcerated, hasn't been directly impacted by the criminal legal system like that, um, I do feel a sense of obligation to people who I've encountered over the years, right? Both from working in an employment program, helping folks who are out of job because of their um, former incarceration, like finding work from folks who I've met inside who have done any number of things under like very disparate economic circumstances to try to make ends meet, right? Like telling those stories and drawing connections between the ways that things that we're doing in our everyday lives promote that carceral mindset, promote pushing people out of institutions and our communities um, do end up having like these big drastic implications of like putting people in places where they're being tortured. Right. Um, So, you know, with a person with that privilege of never being incarcerated, like, what am I doing with that? I know like as a white person, right. Like when it comes to doing this work with, um, both decarceral work, abolitionist work, but also like racial justice work. Like those are things that you've considered. Um, how do you navigate those spaces? Well, I mean, I'm the farthest thing humanly possible in many ways from being system impacted. Uh, I'm a survivor of torture. I'm formerly incarcerated. Um, but doing this work and navigating my privilege and whiteness, it's, it's, it is my work um, as a white person to speak out about incarceration, especially since I, I navigate this strange um, identity as a, as a survivor of torture in another country. I also, as a trauma-informed journalist, it's my, it is my work in an alignment. I mean, I believe it's all of our jobs to, to you know, heal and fulfill our, our, our reasons for being here. You know, our, our essential um, self is, is essentially what we're responsible to how to how to be in community and support other people's healing and growth, um, and we all navigate that in different ways. and And I approach it as how do I do this work without doing harm, right? Which is a, a very mm-hmm. restorative justice model. And as a transformative justice journalist, um, I mean, as a sorry trauma informed journalist, um, I'm asking myself, you know, I'm interviewing um, people of color. I'm interviewing trauma survivors, I'm interviewing people with mental illness, how do I do that in a way that doesn't do more harm? Because the, the, the institution of journalism has done and continues to do a tremendous amount of harm by not being sensitive to the fact that that people's stories is some, you can't, under, no one can understand how essential to our identity our story is. And people have a right to shape their story in a way that is empowering and true for them and to not be manipulated into, into telling their story in, in a way that, that, that might harm them or hurt them. Um, and this is not an, an easy thing to do. And it's one of the reasons, especially within, under the institution of journalism with deadlines and editors and all these people that have control over what actually gets printed that, that, um, that I, that under my name, <laughs> um, that I don't mm-hmm. have control over. Um, but and it's one of the reasons why I've shifted to doing creative projects because with creative projects, I am, I have more freedom to do my work with integrity and in relationship um, because I don't have this whole institution um, of a, of a, 
particular platform, um, you know, breathing down my neck. Um, and, and I've been, I've, I've gotten response from communities that I've worked in, both in a journalistic capacity and on the creative, you know, theater and a graphic novel. I did a graphic novel as well. Um, that it was really different working with me than it, that it is working with other journalists because I, um, I take my time and, and, and I encourage mm-hmm. people to, to take breaks and to take care of themselves. And I, I, I work with, you know, I think that transparency is the new objectivity. I try to be very transparent about my own, my own lens and where I'm coming from. And, um, and, and none of us are objective. You know, I, I have skin in the game. I, I care a lot about the communities that I'm working in and I'm proud of that. And I want to make sure they know that. Um, so yeah, I, I'm sorry. I can't remember your question. Did I, no, I mean, did I go into thinking about the okay. framework of like, mm-hmm. no, I mean like you answered the question. to you know, what was present to you? I think the question was about like doing this uh, work in a white body yes. and like the considerations oh, you that, that you're making. Mm-hmm. And I think you did like, well, I would like to yeah. say more about, yeah. Is there anything else that you yeah, want? I mean, yeah. You can't separate my commitment to anti-racism to my commitment to being trauma informed or being an abolitionist. Um, and as as a white bodied person, I am very much committed to doing the somatic work that I need to do. Cause you can say all the right words and the energy that you're bringing into a room has impact, um, that I, you know, carries, carries often whiteness and white culture with it wherever I go. And I've actually learned that there, there are spaces that I shouldn't be in period. Um, that I was invited to, to be, to, be part of a transformative justice circle in Chicago and by people that I've worked with. And I walked into the room and I realized everyone else in this circle is system impacted. And I am the, the farthest thing from system impacted. Um, and, and I, even though I was invited here, I need to be the, I need to determine whether it, this is a place where I'm really going to have impact that I don't want to have and, and, and a space that I shouldn't participate in. So that's one of the things that, that transformative justice has helped me be more aware of is how much space and the impact that I'm having it in spaces and how much space I take up just with my whiteness alone. Mm-hmm. And as a survivor, sometimes it just increases the, the space that I take up because people are curious about my story and it's unusual. Um, and I just want to decenter my whiteness and decenter my, um, you know, I can't be anything but white in these spaces, but it's mm-hmm. my responsibility and it's in alignment with my belief system to be sensitive to how that whiteness is impacting the people around me. Yeah. I think you're conscious of that. And you did like, uh, like, I think you modeled it earlier in our conversation where we, you know, might have like gone on like further conversations about, you know, what it looks like, like what it looked like to be incarcerated overseas. And so like, I just wanted to like call out the model of that there, but I also want to acknowledge that like in your body, there are certain people who will listen to you that won't listen to me or other people. Right. Um, And, you know, there's a conversation that I had on this podcast with Ethan Ucker, a couple episodes back and he's, he's a white man um, who has been doing um, a lot of work alongside um, or from behind people who have been impacted or who are currently being impacted, um, you know, with the specifically thinking about, you know, gun violence reduction um, framework 
um, like taking a harm reduction approach to gun violence or with people who carry guns and thinking about like the positionality and the reality that like there are people who will listen to him that won't listen to the young people that he's working with. How do you carry that consideration? I mean, that's what I am. You know, that is the, this is the platform that, that, that I've been given and that the, the voice that I have, um, I've always wanted to work as collaboratively as possible to elevate other voices. And that's why my work as a journalist um, and an artist is not about telling my own story, but at the same time Mm. um, it's good for people that have direct experience to be a bridge in these areas. Um, And so with all of the theater performances that we do, we're always trying to get a two pronged audience where we're getting people in the room that are stakeholders that are not directly affected by incarceration, um, but can affect the policy and the way that our communities are responding to, to harm that's committed and people that are directly affected that there's the power to the, you know, to bear witness to your own, to a story that you can relate to so powerfully on stage and to have, you know, the, the atrocities that happen inside our prison system and the um, the incredible courage and love born out of these circumstances are so hidden from the public. And theater is such an amazing way to have something viscerally brought to life. Um, it's almost as powerful can be as going into a prison. Uh, if you've never been into a prison, um, going to, a, to, to one of our shows is what we've been told many times um, is that it's such an immersive thing. So, I'm, I'm always trying to reach those audiences, the, the privileged and white affluent audiences that don't think that they're affected by mass incarceration, that they think that, oh, that's, that's someone else's problem. Um, it's not my belief. I believe it, it diminishes all of us. And I think that's part of my, my um, desire is to make that clear that no one can live in a society that tortures and imprisons people on such a massive scale and not be affected or diminished by it. Um, our imaginations are diminished. Our ability to love one another and be in community with one another is diminished. And we're all made less safe um, by the existence of, of the carceral state. Um, we're all made, we're put in a position of insecurity and f- fearing our neighbors, fearing people that are different than us, and, and believing that by hurting them, we will somehow be stronger or better. And that's just a belief in, in maintaining um, your own privilege and power. And look where that's gotten to us. You know, that's gotten us into a, a place where none of us feel at all hopeful, you know, about the, the future of our, our, of, of, of our government and our, you know, social institutions. A lot of us are looking outside of those paradigms, but we also need to look inside ourselves as yeah. As, as white privileged people because um, we've internalized those paradigms. Yeah. I think like I had like 80 billion thoughts <laughs> Great. in my let's, head and I think like, yes, let's hear them. Yeah. So the, you know, for those who have been listening to this podcast feed, you know, on Tuesdays or Wednesdays, depending on our production schedule. As of late, we've been having conversations about the HBO show, The Last of Us. And, you know, Kala and I have had conversations about like, oh, what are the things that we want to talk about next? But like what you were just talking about is like to the um, 
to the Batmans of the world. Like Batman's origin story in some of the iterations were like his rich parents um, were murdered, like leaving a show, right? Or like leaving, um, leaving a party, leaving some kind of function, right? And they had the ability to maybe address the mental health issues or like the poverty issues the person who mugged them was facing um, in, in a given moment. And they didn't do that. And so like, as I'm thinking about, oh, like what is the call to action that you have of white people, privileged folks um, who encounter your artwork, who encounter your theater? Like, I think part of it is money, right? Like reallocation of funds. And like, uh, this is like recalling back to the conversation that I had with Ethan about like, you know, how are we, using the system using the resources of the system to like further liberatory causes right i think that's one part but i think i'm also remembering conversations that i've had with um emmy aguilar and this wasn't ever aired on the podcast this was in a workshop that we did on the difference between land acknowledgement and efforts at land back but you know yes pay your land taxes to the indigenous folks who um are um, traditional caretaker stewards of the land that you live on, but also like the invitation is into relationship, right? Like building relationships, getting proximity to people who are directly impacted um, will help you figure out more authentic ways, more ways that work for you to one, draw connections to the ways that you are actually impacted, but two, like, we can come up with these solutions together with the resources and ideas and experiences of people um, from across all these different sectors. I know that went like, and then now we ended on a point, but um, that was a really deep, good answer and sent me really thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and I, I love that question too, is what am I asking of the white or privileged people that come to my shows or read my articles and, you know, I'm, I think my hope is, is I want them to lose faith in these institutions. You know, I want them to lose faith in the carceral state. Mm. I want them to um, really recognize how much racism and our, our country's um, origin in the institution of slavery continues to inform um, not just the carceral state. I mean, that is a huge way that slavery has has, has morphed into a different system that maintains inequality and racial hierarchy um, in this country. But it's, it, in all of our institutions, we have to seek this reckoning where we, uh, racial reckoning, um, where, you know, white people and people of privilege have to give up power in this country and they're only going to do it by by demand. And of course, this is also a class issue and a capitalism issue. Um, mm -hmm. And um, I just want people to lose faith in the institution of the carceral state, that it helps them in any way and take some responsibility for addressing the causes of harm in our communities. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a good call to action to end on. Um, is there anything else you want to share before we get to the questions that everybody answers when they come on the podcast? I think we did a good job of covering a lot. I really appreciate your questions. 
As we've heard, so much about doing this work is the practice, but it's always great to have some fundamentals. So if you want to tap into the Intro to RJ Racial and Restorative Justice course, the link to engage in that learning is in the show notes. If you want to go deeper in your practice or explore other aspects of doing work that is restorative and building a better world for future generations, we have learning opportunities for you too, both in courses and live workshops. If you're in a community, school, or organization that would benefit from this learning, we're more than happy to get on a call with you to talk about how we can support this work in your context. In addition to rating, reviewing, and subscribing to this podcast, amplification of this work also means sharing these learning opportunities with others. So if there are individuals in your life who you want to really know this work in a deep and meaningful way, and you've found the things that you've heard here on this podcast really relevant, please send them our way. It's how we literally amplify the work. Now back to the questions that everybody answers when they come on these airwaves. Well then, we've talked around it a lot, but in your own words, define restorative justice. No, it's, it's um, as you ask this question, I'm looking out my windows at, at the beautiful green hills around where I live, and, and I, I see a crow perched on the top of a tree outside my window, and re- being asked about restorative justice really grounds me in where we started in this conversation around the web that of interrelatedness and interconnectedness that we're in. Um, and, you know, the responsibility to embodying the values of justice, of equality, of forgiveness and healing that most of us have, you know, have not, we might not have been given these things ourselves. And yet we are the ones that need to embody these values in order for others to be given them. And we need to give them to ourselves and we need to give them to each other. And, you know, restorative justice means not ever forgetting that you are, as an individual, your essential longing is connection to others and healthy connection. And um, to follow that longing in, in all the work you do and all the relationships that, that you're a part of and all the lives that you touch. No, that, that was beautiful. Thank you so much for that. Um, as you've been doing this work, and we can define this work as broadly as you want to, um, what's been an oh shit moment? Often a moment where like you made a mistake or did something that like, oh, I wish I would have done something differently. It could also be like, oh shit. Yeah, I did that. And it was awesome. And then what did you learn from it? <laughs> oh, whoa, this one, what? This, this is kind of caught me off. So an oh shit or an ah shit moment, huh? I mean, there's so many oh shit moments. I mean, I, I have to go back to this, the end of isolation tour that we did last summer. It was one of the hardest things that, that I've ever done. And I was lucky enough to be on a tour bus. We did, we, we toured the country in a converted school bus and um, it was with mm-hmm. other formerly incarcerated actors, you know, performing under unbelievable conditions that, the climate crisis was at our doorstep every 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 day um, with flash floods in St. Louis and heat storms, um, un- unbelievable conditions, and um, yeah, there were just a lot of oh shit moments. <laughs> but um, one was definitely one of the first days when um, some of the equipment fell off the bus into the freeway. And like the kind of 
I, I can fix this like hubris of a white woman. I like stopped traffic and ran into the freeway and, and got the equipment back. And, you know, I thought I was being such a badass and, and I'm still unpacking that and listening to interviews of other people in the crew and, and just realizing that like that action made people feel so unsafe. Um, and because mm-hmm. I was risking my own life potentially, I mean, I felt like I was being careful, but we all have different standards of, of, of what's, you know, safe and, and risk standards and just thinking as a, it was such a challenge that summer to think outside of my own experience as a white woman, um, and, and my own personality, um, and, and my own history of like, you know, DIY adventurism and, and think for the collective. And there were just so many, Oh shit moments where I was like, this is how it looks from my perspective. And there are eight other people here that are seeing it from a completely different point of view. And, um, whew, that was definitely an, Oh shit. And, and a little bit of an, Oh shit at the same time, um, moment. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, yeah, yeah, the guy, the guy, the other guy on the bus was um, um, a Latino Latinx man, and he was running after me down the freeway. And he was like, "Wait a minute, I need to go in front of her because right now what this looks like is a, a Latino man chasing a white woman down the freeway, and that's these optics are not good for me." Yeah. Um, uh, right. So there's just yeah. so many. Yeah, it was definitely an oh shit moment for my own blindness around around race, and um, and there's just a million you know instances like that in the world where. We have to get outside of seeing things only from our own perspectives. Yeah. This this next question is uh, hard in a different way. You get to sit in circle with four people, living or dead. Who are they? And what is the one question you ask the circle? Mm. Mm. I mean, I have to go with my ancestors because I, um, you know, I come from an Irish Catholic background and a, a lot of my ancestors, my, I never met. Um, they died of mm-hmm. diseases often related to alcoholism. Um, and I just have so many questions for them as far as, and so few stories. And I would really ask them, you know, why did you come to this country? And what were you expecting to happen here? It's yeah. it's something I would really, really like to know. Cause here I am, you know, thrown into this 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 wild mix um, of an experiment and I'm trying to navigate doing it in a way that's accountable and yet my ancestors didn't provide me with much as far as a roadmap, you know, really reinventing or inventing and reinventing ourselves every generation. It feels like in this country in some ways. Yeah. That question gets taken a lot of different ways. Um, Often like ancestors being brought in and, you know, often from white folks, people who have um, those, those same kind of questions, the other thing that happens on this podcast is those, like I often flip the question to the guest who asked it. What do you imagine some of their responses might've been? I mean, I know that 
the time that my Irish ancestors came over here was the aftermath of the, um, um, mm-hmm. the, the potato. Um, it, it's always called famine, but there's famine. another word for it. I mean, basically every single potato turned oh. to a hard purple rock overnight. So, you know, um, the disease that happened um, killed you know, the food source oh, at, okay. at its root. And, you know, that's something that, mm-hmm. that I can't even imagine. They were so much in survival mode. And, and that actually makes yeah. me understand why they adopted, you know, their whiteness and white supremacy as, as a way of surviving. Mm-hmm. It was not a smart choice. Um, because allying with black and brown people would have been a much more empowering choice for, for, for them and everyone else involved because there's collective power that was lost there in, um, and still continues to play out in our history. It, um, but I, you know, now that you asked me the question, I'd really like to know what was life like for you before you went into survival mode? Cause I feel like he, they, Mm-hmm. You know, that famine in Ireland set into um, set into motion generations of survival mode. And that's something that in my lifetime, I'm, I'm trying to, I want to get out of. I want to experience life. You know, my spirit yeah. longs for experiencing life outside of, of, of a mode where you're, you're thinking of how you're going to survive. And instead of thinking of how we can thrive as communities, how we are thriving as communities. But these, you know, these ancestral patterns are deeply embedded in our nervous systems. And I want to know how, what life was like for my ancestors before, before that, that is the mode um, of, of, of being that has started to dominate their lives. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. And I think like, you know, what survive like they might not have made the calculation that like, I'm going to move to America and assimilate into like the white cis heteropatriarchy. Right. Um, that might've been the decision that was made and like collectively made by the people who they were migrating with. Um, right. Like not everybody, I mean, this isn't a lesson on white supremacy here. Right. But like not everybody who first landed here with European ancestry was considered white. People have assimilated over time. Irish people were not considered white when they first landed here, but like, you know, what were the moments of, oh yeah, I'll assimilate and give up this part of my culture to <laughs> benefit at the expense of black and indigenous people here. Um, you know, unanswerable question, but you know, like survival is at the root of that. Yeah, my spirit so, tells me. Um, there's something Always. rising in my spirit that tells me that there was, there was song, you know, there was music in my, in my ancestors history that, um, you know, before it was about, mm-hmm. and that's true for all of us. Right. Um, but it's such a, it's such a deep thing. that's just arising from my spirit that, um, there was connection to the land and there was song. And that's something that it, you know, yeah. is so important to, to maintain, to continue to cultivate. Yeah, definitely. Um, last two questions. Who's one person that I should have on the podcast and has to be someone <laughs> who you can help me get on? <laughs> oh, so many. What, what's the other questions while I'm thinking? You said two. 
Oh, oh the last question is, uh, how can people support you and your work in the ways you want to be supported? So like, that's like oh. the plug all your shit question. So this is like, in some nice. ways, like the last, last nice, answer, nice. Um, last, last question. Yeah. Have you had, cause I'm, I'm in contact with some pretty amazing RJ people around the country. Um, there's a, there's a woman in St. Louis that does RJ. Her name's Tracy Powell. Um, there's, I would yeah, love Orlando to be in contact Mayor, with Tracy. Mayoraga. Mayoraga. Mayorga. Mayorga. Yeah, I've had chili on. Um, yeah. Um, that's great. Yeah. Oh my God, I want to listen to that episode. Um, yeah. The, the other people around that are coming to me, um, there's, um, you know, I, I've heard that there are RJ people around the country. Have you had Daniel Soret on? No, I like common justice. People are like pretty protective yeah. of her time. Um, I, so like, I have like, I have direct communication with their team, but like, I haven't like had direct communication with her. I would love to, well, I've but interviewed I haven't her yet. Before. Yeah. Do you have I've met her? So if you, if you, yeah. if it's helpful for me to do an introduction, just let me know. Um, yeah. And there is also restorative justice in Oakland, the, the center, um, Tash Wynn. Restorative justice um, for Oakland um, youth just or restore, restore Oakland is, is the restorative justice center in Oakland. Oh, okay. Have you heard of it? It's been around for a couple of years. I don't. Yeah. Well, Tash Wynn so. is the director there and, um, they are doing really, really incredible work. Um, I, I believe it's the first center only devoted to restorative justice in the country. And it's a beautiful center. Um, in Oakland. Are they operating in concert no, with the legal system? I'm sorry. Yeah. It's transformative justice. Oh, okay. I, I sh um, it's called restore Oakland, but it's transformative justice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, they yeah. have all kinds gotcha. of, you know, check out their website. If you're interested in interviewing Tash, um, uh, Tash, T-A-S-H, um, last name, Wynn, N-G-U-Y-E-N. N-G. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think okay. I think they're the organization that's going to be doing grief circles for Jen Angel, and um, they work with Arjoy in Oakland, and um, yeah, they just do incredible yeah. stuff about really about like supporting small businesses and reinvesting in communities. A lot of uh, addressing you know the root causes of of crime in Oakland, and also providing um, spaces for dialogue. Yeah. So check them out. Absolutely. Um, and then finally, where can people support you and your work in the ways that you want to be supported? Well, I want to be supported. One of the really invaluable ways that I, that I have been lucky enough to get support is through feedback. Anything that I've said on this podcast that, that listeners want to respond to, with, whether it's with you know, questions or, um, or curiosities, applause or what is it pros or grows um I, i'm really open to that and it's easy to to reach me on my website which is just my name sarahshord.com and that's shored like gourd s-h-o-u-r-d okay it'll be in the show um, notes and um yeah. <laughs> you can also stay in touch with end of isolation at endofisolation.org we are creating a documentary series that highlighting the work of our community partners 
on the front lines of ending solitary confinement in alignment with abolitionist principles of decarceration around the country. So we're, we're working on this really rad docu-series that is going to highlight um, different the different communities around the country and what the movement looks like there and its, its origins and how it's being led by formerly incarcerated uh, organizers. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So again, all of those things down in the show notes or description, depending on your on where you're watching this, like, subscribe, review, help us further amplify this work. Uh, Sarah, we're so grateful for your time, your wisdom, your stories. I know we could have gone on for much, much longer, and maybe we'll have you back. Um, but we'll be back in this feed on Tuesday or Wednesday, again, depending on our production. Uh, taking the restorative justice reflections that we found from the last of us episode eight and next Thursday with another episode with a conversation with someone living this restorative justice life. Um, until then, take care. Thank you, David. This has been incredible. Like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast on whatever platform you're using right now. Or if you're old school, tell a friend. It really helps us further amplify this work. You can also support us by following us on our social platforms, signing up for our email list, signing up for a community gathering, workshop, or course. So many options. Links to everything in the show notes. Or on our website, amplifyrj.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.